Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. theater lovers both out and proud and on the DL. Welcome back to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called The Big Move, and it is covering shows that had such success off-Broadway they just had to move to the Great White Way and try some luck over there. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of the Broadway podcast hosts, and with me today is a returning guest of the podcast. Uh, You know him. Some of you love him. A lot of you requested his return for some reason. He's still confused as to why, but we'll see how this goes. Peter Koplick, a.k.a. my father, a.k.a. Boo Boo, but only I get to call him that. Hi, Boo Boo. Wonders never cease. Wonders never cease. How are you today, dear? I'm fine. Uh-huh. Uh, looking forward to talking about our subject matter for the day. Which is? Kimberly Akimbo. Yes, you saw it for the first So we were recording this on Monday. March 20th. Uh, you saw it for the very first time this past Thursday. First and only. First. Only so far. You, you'll you be coming back to New York. You don't know what I'm going to drag you to when, you, when you're here. Uh, it's a world of opportunity. That's one of the themes of the show. That's, so let's get into it then. Uh, th- that, this is your history with Kimberly Akimbo. You just saw it the one time on Thursday. Yeah. You listened to the cast recording this weekend. I made you. Well, that's... The good thing I did, because as you know, my hearing is defective, and the cast recording enabled me to uh, understand and digest the lyrics a lot better than when I saw it live. But there were, you know, there were an, a lot of differences in how I reacted to it when I listened to it only, as opposed to seeing it live. Uh, it's both a blessing and a curse. Sure. Well. I'm glad you could get a better listen to the lyrics, because I think the lyrics are great. Uh, Full disclosure, as we go into this episode, everybody, I have now seen the show four times, including when I saw it a year ago off-Broadway. I love this show. Um, Speaking of a blessing and a curse, four times? Yeah, and so what? How many times did you see Amos Behaven? Too many. No, not if it brings you joy. My point being, as we talk about the show, I just want to have a full disclosure on this. Uh, I think the show is great. And we'll get into reasons why I think objectively it is a good show. Just know this. The ultimate reason it's a good show, why you should think it's a good show, why you should go see it, is that I am telling you it's good, (laughs) and I have extraordinary taste. So, True on all counts. 1,000%. I never said I was modest. I just said I had great taste. Extraordinary is distinct from good. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I chose my words perfectly. (laughs) 
It's not just good taste. It's extraordinary. You, you know how I feel about precision in language, Matthew. Yes, well, speaking of precision in language, the title of this musical is due to language. Mm. Uh, anagrams. What's an anagram, Papa? Uh, it's a respelling of existing words into different words. Yes. The letters get rearranged to create a new, yes. a new word or multiple words to create multiple words. Close enough. Yes. And that is how we get the title of this musical yes. because our leading lady is Kimberly Lavaco and the boy with whom she has a crush on, Seth Wiedis, enjoys anagrams and he rearranges her, the letters of her name to become cleverly akimbo. So the title of the musical is a combination of the two, which I find just fucking delightful. Um... What is Kimberly of Kimbo about, Father? I'm not sure I can give a 25 words or less answers to that because it's about a lot. Plot wise. Well, give, give uh, as much, do your best plot wise. Uh, Kimberly is a 16 year old girl who has a condition that makes her age geometrically and therefore has a life expectancy of about 16. Mm -hmm. And that is what the plot uh, centers on, her friends, her family, um, uh, heist plot. Yes. uh, And involving a mailbox. The uplift at the end that um, that is the center of two numbers in the second act that are very touching. But as I said, uplift. Absolutely. This is a, the point being that this is a, a girl who's going to live while she's alive and not uh, live waiting to die. Yeah. So the, we'll get into all the details. A lesson for all of us. I agree. We'll get into the details as we continue with this, but um, that is the central plot of the show. Not, there's not much narrative overall. The, the big plot crux would be the scam that her Aunt Deborah courses her and her friends The heist, into. The as heist. it were. Exactly. Uh, but we, that, we never actually watch that happen. That happens offstage. A lot of it is just sort of character development. And Kimberly... What's interesting about Kimberly is so she turns 16 at the end of Act 1, and we are told that the average life expectancy for someone with her condition, which is a fictional condition, by the way, she ages four to four, uh, four to five times faster than the average human. So even though she is 16, she is in the body of a 65 to 70-year-old woman, hence Victoria Clark. And when you get to my age, you start aging fast. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's a slippery slope. It's, it's, it's a... Uh, Stone gathering moss. You ain't kidding. No, I'm not. I've never, I've never kid a day in my life. I stand by everything I've ever said. But her, Kimberly was born. Uh, her parents were teenagers themselves when they had her. They think they were sixteen, seventeen. So they're sort of stuck in arrested development. Accidents happen. Yes, exactly. Uh, not on the itinerary, baby, is how I like to mm-hmm. describe that. Uh, the one of the jokes we hear is her mom saying to Kimberly very seriously, but it's I find it funny is when she says, uh, "I would have been prom queen if I hadn't been pregnant," and then says to Kimberly, "You cost me several votes." <laughs> and that's a good one. It's a, it's a very good one. Her again. Her parents are 
so this is something that I know is a sticking point for a lot of people with this show is the quote unquote meanness that's in there. And I have to say, if you read the play, because it's based off David Lindsay Abair, who did the book and lyrics, wrote the play that it's based off of. It was composer Janine Tesori's idea to adapt the play into a musical because she reread it and said to him, I think that there's more that you could explore here. And if you read the original play, it's a lot meaner. Her parents are truly awful in the play. Uh, whereas in the musical, it's more explored that they do love her, but they are just such messes and they are so self-centered and such right. fuck-ups. They, ma they make an effort to be better, they but do. they're not able. No, well, not able with her, which is sort of the... When we meet Kimberly's father, he is almost three hours late in picking Drunk. her up. Drunk and almost three hours late picking her up from the ice skating rink and it is you know 15 degrees outside and she's been waiting for hours and when they get back home the mom is pregnant with casts on both hands from carpal tunnel surgery which she probably did not need because she's a bit of a hypochondriac and again a narcissist so she why would i have surgery on my hands if i didn't need it yes that's what she's she she's pregnant and recording a video message to her soon-to-be-born baby. 16 years I worked in the Sunshine Cupcake Factory pumping cream into those ding-dong knockoffs. 16 years of squeezing, squeezing, squeezing that goddamn cream gun. I should sue. I should sue. I tried, actually, but they said I made the whole thing up. How crazy is that? Why would I get operations on both hands if I did not need them? Money. Yeah, and also because she's a little bonkers. It was never clear to me mm -hmm. why she was making the video. Because, as she says, people are going to tell you things about me that just aren't true. But just if, aren't true. If, does the mother have a very limited life expectancy? She thinks so. That's, again, this is the thing. She, they say, you're not dying, Patty. And she goes, of course I am. Everyone does. And you just don't know when it's going to happen. In her mind, she could go the day after the baby is born. That's a level of delusion that they don't make clear. I think they do. Well, I think the, they tr again, they're trying not to go off the deep end with either character because they have to have a window open still for redemption by the end of the show. So there's humanity in there, but what makes them kind of off is Patty, the mother, has a level of delusion about herself where she thinks that every every illness could possibly happen to her, maybe even does, and she has protagonist syndrome, which is what I like to call how we all go about our lives because we are the main characters of our own lives, and therefore we think everything happens to us. And the truth is... Some of us become more grounded and realize that it doesn't. We're just day players in the in the main story of the world. But Patty thinks that she is, you know, Fosca in passion and has all of the Ill ailments. So she's making the videos out of her own narcissism of wanting to preserve her legacy and thinking that she could go at any moment. Uh, I liked her performance better when I heard the soundtrack mm -hmm. than I did watching it live. Why was that for you? Uh, first of all, it's a great singing voice. Yeah. And I think um, I understood and therefore appreciated um, 
how he was acting the songs mm-hmm. when I heard them more clearly. Mm-hmm. I uh, perhaps uh, I'm characteristic of people my age, but I'm often struggling to understand the words as I'm hearing them in the theater, mm-hmm. and therefore not uh, not just sort of sitting back and taking it in. Uh, and listening to the cast recording, I'm sort of absorbing it more and hearing what's being said instead of sort of focusing to get it. I thought she was ter- she was terrific, uh, and I, as I said, appreciated her more the second time. Yeah, well, I think that's absolutely fair. And I will say for myself, again, as someone... so. Are you saying that your father, unlike life, is fair? No. <laughs> no. I'm, Only I'm, in this case. In, in this moment in time, in this room that we are in. <laughs> which, by the way, everyone, uh, last time my father was on the podcast, we recorded via FaceTime on opposite sides of the country. This time we're in the same room. So you get to hear our camaraderie and our, and our banter in real time. It's wonderful, isn't it, Papa? Uh, there was no compensation for the flight to New York. Compensation? <laughs> Who do you think I am? What podcast do you think you're on? What network do you think this is? Uh, sadly, I'm quite aware. Yeah, this is not <laughs> Dax Shepard, armchair expert. How dare you? I, I, much as I would love to be, I am not married to Kristen Bell. But uh, no, what I was going to say was, I, so I again, I saw the show at the Atlantic Theater Company, hence why it's on this series that we are doing. Yeah. It's also a Janine Tesori. And it's a Janine Tesori musical. And we did Tesori uh, last season? Two seasons ago. We did Tesori two seasons ago. So it, it matches two things up. At the Atlantic, I thought it was really delightful. It was still a little mean-spirited downtown, a little more so than it is now. And it wasn't quite as tight. I think they shaved off about like five to ten minutes between off-Broadway and Broadway. And it was just like... Never a bad idea. No, and... I, I've always said, you know, when people say, oh, it should be 20 minutes shorter, it should be 30 minutes shorter. I say, no, you have to kind of be strategic because sometimes cutting out the correct five minutes, you don't need to cut 20 if you cut the right moments out of certain things, uh, which is what they did. They didn't cut whole chunks. They mostly just went through and would cut two or three lines from every scene, tighten up some tempos. Anyway, I bring this up because I saw it at the Atlantic. I thought it was lovely. And then I saw it on Broadway in December, no, in November, in November, because I was in a good headspace when I saw Kimberly Akimbo. I saw Kimberly Akimbo before my world went to shit at the end of November. Uh, but the uh, point is, is that I, I always liked the show and I always liked the score. And I know some people have had qualms with the score. I don't exactly know what their qualms are objectively because I think the score does exactly what it's supposed to do. Point is, when the cast album came out about a month ago, I listened to it and was blown away by things that I just did not pick up on in the theater. And I think the sound design on this production is is very strong, but there are things you just can't get across in the theater with visuals, with breath support. You're just, the balancing just will never be as exact as it can be in a cast recording. There are so many nuances to this score, both in the lyrics and in the fucking harmonies. The vocal arrangements for this show are goddamn fire. The show choir... The four teens, their arrangements are so good that I could just listen to them all day. In the opening in Skater Planet, their backups in 
uh, Deborah's songs in Better and in How to Wash a Check. Just so good. And I bring this up because you talked about hearing the cast album, how certain things resonated with you better than in the theater. You're not alone with that. I have better hearing than you do. And I heard the it's cast It's a recording. low bar. Yeah, but still, <laughs> I clear it. And I listened to the cast recording for the first time and was just absolutely gobsmacked by all the wonderful things in the score. I did not pick up on it in the theater. And I think that some performances, because you don't have the... Uh, I don't want to call it distractions because there's nothing distracting on stage in this show. But still, you know, when everything is cleared away and you just sort of listen to the raw material, you can get a new appreciation for certain performances. And I do think Ali Mazi as the mom helped well, with that. One of the, I, for lack of a better word, miracles of musical theater, which I guess is derivative from opera, is the way... You can tell a story with songs uh-huh. uh, and act the songs. Theoretically. And so, and, and if You're supposed to. Yes, I'm saying you're supposed to act the songs. Do, um, do everybody? I wouldn't say so. Listening to the cast recording drove home to me how well everyone in the cast, but particularly Victoria Clark, acts the songs Mm -hmm. and um i think when i was watching it so much of normal acting is done with your face uh and i don't know that i focus well on both at the same time but when i'm not watching the actors act i'm listening to them act with their voice uh and the cast recording just drove that home. I mean, she, I mean, Victor- she was fabulous. The first time you saw Victoria Clark was in Follies in L.A., right? You didn't, yeah. See, yeah. You didn't see her in Light in the Piazza. No, I never saw Light in the Piazza, another of my misses. But she, she was fabulous in Follies. When yeah. has she not been fabulous? Well, yeah. No, that, so that's the thing. I've seen, I've seen Vicky, Miss Clark, if you're nasty. I've uh, seen her in Piazza. I what saw- did she call you? Who? That's what she calls me. Who? <laughs> uh, yeah, I know she's she's incredible. I saw her in Piazza with Nanny. I saw her in Cinderella. I saw her in Sister Act. I've seen her in Gigi, and now I've seen her in this. And did even, she play Gigi? No, she played she played Hermione Gingold in Gigi. Oh yeah, Which and they gave her say a prayer for me. Miscast. Well. I'm not going to get into Gigi, which I saw on opening night with Papasan, but uh, needless to say, that whole production was a misfire. The two things they got right were the costumes and giving Victoria Clark Say a Prayer for Me Tonight, which they changed to Say a Prayer for Her Tonight. And if she didn't get that song, Victoria Clark would not have been Tony nominated for Gigi. But I digress. Vicky has not won a Tony since Piazza, so she's... That she's fucking due. And I will talk about that more in next week's episode as we do Tony predictions, which this podcast will be doing until Tony time. But Vicky is, in my opinion, top three singing actresses of the stage right now. Her, Audra, and uh, probably Kunzi, probably Miss Judy Kuhn. In the sense that they really can sort of do any genre of acting 
and they can do any genre of music as they've gotten older and and have uh, more control over their careers they choose what they what they want to sing more often vicky in her in her early days dad she did fucking everything she was smitty in the how to succeed revival with matthew broderick uh i'll play they they gave her a reprise of how to because they cut cinderella darling and she was about to walk she was like you've given me no reason to be in the show and i have a newborn why the fuck am i here And they said we'll give you a reprise of the title song and give you feminist lyrics do you she... think coffee break was enough no because she's got to <laughs> share the stage with bud from she's like i want to be center stage and i want a belt please and she does and she sounds great she plays alice beale I think is her last name, in Titanic, where she only has one bit, really, in the opening song, where she's uh, she's listing off all the first-class passengers for the Titanic. But goddamn, does she sing it so well. And she belts the end, she must be somebody. And then she was Pennywise for a bit in Urinetown. She did Piazza, Cinderella. Like, woman can just do it all. And was a phenomenal Sally. Last time you and I were on the phone, we were talking about something. I don't know. Something about the Oscars. And somehow it devolved into Vicky versus Bernadette as Sally and Follies. This is where our conversations go when my dad and I talk on the phone. We'll talk about our health. We'll talk about the weather. We'll talk about your mom. And then I'll just go into, like, Follies or we'll quote some like it hot. Some people got no respect for the dead. No fair guessing. I wish you'd quote Birdcage with me more. I like. I don't know what... Well, you gotta watch it more then, babe. Start watching it more. I only have so much bandwidth. That's not true. You have so much. Some Like It Hot, I've got put down some pretty like much it, word for word. Some Like It Hot, All About Eve. Let me give you a setup for one of our favorites. Why do they always look like unhappy rabbits? Because that's what they are. Go make him happy. Mm-hmm. That was my Marilyn, everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't call him Butler. His last name might be Butler. You have a point. An idiotic one, but a point. This is where we're at. Oh, before we continue, let's take a break. Really, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow collar. You're the top. You're a Coolidge dollar. You're the nimble head. And we're back. I don't know if you know this, Papa, but I'm on a network now. Which means we have advertisers, which means I have to take breaks in this podcast. Hopefully your network doesn't go down as much as mine does. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> we were talking about Vicky. We are talking about Miss Victoria Clark. Uh, so, as opposed to Bernadette. As opposed to Bernadette and Follies, which we could go into if you want, but we don't have to. You saw Been her there, in, done that. Yeah, saw her in Follies. That was your first time seeing her. Had Were you aware of her before seeing her? I was aware of her, but I Never, hadn't seen her. Yeah. And you enjoyed her in Follies. She was great. Yeah. Uh, you know, she was well, ca- well cast. Yeah. As you said, she can probably do anything and she can sing the hell out of anything and act it, which um, Follies really calls for. Yeah. And you had mentioned earlier, which I was throwing shade at before, uh, theoretically speaking, in a musical, you should be acting through your song, not just singing it. And there are people who do do that. Victoria Clark is in our top three people who do that. Not everyone do, though. Uh, there are many a Broadway show I could point you to and say, see that robot over there? They are not acting. But we're not here to throw anyone under the bus yet. Uh, what was your take on Vicky in Kimberly when you were watching it versus when you were listening to her? Uh, I was watching her face mm. and her 
body language and her mannerisms more than um, absorbing her singing. I think she would probably be very pleased to hear that. Because if you focus just on the voice... Do you have contact information for her? I'm happy to pass it I am very, very well connected, sir. (laughs) I know everyone. Do I talk to everyone? No, because some people are assholes. (laughs) Uh, No, but she's... I mean, she's an actress, and she... I would like to make her happy. She's very happy on her own. (laughs) I don't think she needs me to be happy. No, she's... If I can throw another log on the fire... That bitch is living her best life. She doesn't need either of us to make her happy. (laughs) She... But I I have read her chapter in Nothing Like a Dame. She wanted to be a director. That's how she got into this business was she was trying to become a director. She became she, – I mean she always acted, but she became a Broadway actress by accident. She was in the directing program I think at NYU maybe. And the – I think I – I'm mixing up all the historical information, so apologies everybody. But essentially she was in a directing program. And they would work a lot with the songwriting program, and in order, and she was one of the few singers of the directing class. So whenever the songwriters had material, she would get up and perform it. And one of the songwriters was working on Sunday in the Park with George on Broadway, and they were casting a swing in the show. And they were like, "Vicky, go in," and she did, booked it, and from there on, just started performing more. She was on the tour of Cats and Les Mis, and. She was offered, I believe, the resident director or associate director position for for Les Miserables and ended up taking, I think, Guys and Dolls instead, where she understudied Faith Prince. And she doesn't regret... She could do either of those. Well, she... she talked Guys about, and Dolls. She talked about Guys and Dolls. She was in the uh, missionary group and understudied <laughs> Adelaide and went on for two weeks and said that uh, it was difficult because Nathan Lane was not the most... Uh, collaborative and gracious oh basically made her rehearse every day with management because she wasn't faith prince and wanted to get a faith prince performance out of her for the two weeks that she was on and she resented that and she said they're good now now that she's a tony winner they've mended (laughs) the fence but she had said from doing the guys and dolls experience with nathan lane as she became a proper lead on Broadway, how to be a gracious lead and how to be supportive and collaborative with the understudies because they are not there to give you the same exact performance. They have to do some things the same for the sake of safety, but they're a different person with their own interpretation of the role. Most work lives give people examples of both how to behave and how not to behave. Mm -hmm. And hopefully one can learn from both of them. I certainly have had both. I I did I inferred a little bit about this in the Spring Awakening episode. There is it's really tricky when you get success early on in your career at a young age. If not to say that not to say that um everyone's got a struggle, but I have found that the performers and the creatives that took a while to blow up have the most level heads because they not only did they work hard for it, but they they were in positions before where they were not treated. They well. saw how, what it was like exactly in the same way that I think. First of all, everyone in high school and college should take one dance class to learn about uh, movement, sp- movement and space management, about how to just be aware of your body. I think also in college, everyone needs to spend a semester working in a restaurant because everyone's got to learn about how to be gracious to each other and how some jobs may not be glamorous, but they require a lot of effort and hard work. Uh, 
but with Spring Awakening, what I kind of talked about was they. So sorry to my listeners who already heard this, but my father has not. They released a documentary last year about the original cast doing a reunion concert of Spring Awakening on the stage of the Imperial. And they, you know, did interviews and they sort of talked about the history of the show. And that show meant a lot to a lot of people. I was a Grey Gardens kid, but you already know this. Jonathan Groff says at one point in the documentary, you know, it's crazy. You know, even though it took a little bit for the show to finally find its footing and find an audience, when it did blow up, the success of the show didn't go to anybody's head. And oh boy, did I shout bullshit at my TV screen when I watched that. Jonathan Groff is notoriously one of the loveliest people in this industry. Not a bad word has been said about him by anyone. However, it is absolutely Vaseline on the lens of your memory to say that it didn't affect everyone because, bitch, I was there. I actually knew some of those people at the time. I knew people who knew other people in that cast. And I don't care who you are. When you're 19 and your face is on a billboard in Times Square and you've got hundreds of people at the stage door every night, telling you you're in, you're famous and an icon, it does something to you. What do you think happens to professional athletes who become worth hundreds of millions of dollars when they're 20 or 22 years old? What do you think happens to them? Uh, it messes them up. Yep. John Mulaney has a bit about this in one of his old, old stand-ups. I, but I, I could say it messes some of them up. This does not happen people. to everybody. Well, and, well, I'm not saying this necessarily as a dick to There's anybody. There's a famous case right now where a guy who plays in the NBA just was suspended and, and you know, he's, it's, it's, a, it's a horror show. I'm sure. And, you know, he's a spectacular, great player uh, who's very close to destroying his life by get it, making a TikTok video of himself in a nightclub brandishing a gun. That's a choice for sure. Uh, Victoria Clark will never do that, and that's why we love her. Uh, but young, rich, or f- yeah. famous people, uh, it does something to their brain. John Mulaney had a bit in an old stand-up where he had friends ask him about hosts of Saturday Night Live back when he was a writer. Because he was a writer when Mick Jagger was on the show. And they said, oh, is Mick Jagger nice? And he said, No. Or maybe he is for his version of nice. He goes, but he has been Mick Jagger for 50 years. That does something to you when you walk into a stadium of 20,000 people screaming your name like you're a god. Or 80,000. Or 80,000. And for decades. We're talking fucking decades. That man has been famous and wealthy and worshipped since he was a baby. And here we are. But I say this because... Someone like Victoria Clark, it's about the work, it's about respect, it's about collaboration, um, and that's why I love her. You know, Audra might be the only person on Broadway who got famous really young, very quickly, and it has not made her awful. Uh, But I think that's because she had her own struggles before Broadway with Juilliard that grounded her. But Audra McDonald burst onto the scene at 24, and immediately everyone was like, well, here we go, this is our next living legend. Um, You know, there are illustrations you can cite on each side of this. Yeah. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis has handled celebrity from a young age, really well-grounded, productive, uh, uses her celebrity for things that she thinks are worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, I don't know this woman, but uh, as I said, she seems uh, grounded, 
have common sense. Uh, uh, at some level, Julie Andrews has done that. But you you read Julie Andrews's memoir and you see all the struggles that she also had to go through. Julie Andrews also got famous at a time very on, young, very young, but also on Broadway, where you know, yes, you're on the cover of Time Magazine and all that stuff, but there's no social media. You're not. In... Also, she didn't get My Fair Lady, and that had to hurt. Sure, but then she got Mary Poppins at the same time. But I'll think the men that Julie Andrews had to work with in her Julie Andrews was also a woman in the entertainment industry, and worked with some of the biggest shits. That you have to be tough and you have to be grounded to work with Rex Harrison for two and a half years, Richard Burton for a year and a half. My God, the level of stamina you need. Correct me if I'm wrong, and we digress because this we're supposed we're to. We're getting back to it. Don't worry. Um, my sense, but you would probably know better than me, is that Richard Burton was nicer than Rex Harrison, but Richard Burton was a little more crazy. Richard Burton was nicer to her because she was successful by that point, and also because Richard Burton really desperately wanted to have sex with her. Uh, Rex Harrison... Who wouldn't? Well, sure, but that's beside the point. Um, who wouldn't? No, who, it's exactly no, the point. Who, who wouldn't, who hasn't? Uh, <laughs> Rex Harrison was mean to her until they went out of town. Uh, and that's also due to Rex Harrison's own insecurity about being in a musical. Uh, he was going out on a limb to be in a Broadway musical of a play that everyone said was unadaptable for the stage as a musical with a leading lady who had, quote-unquote, never acted before. And by her own account, she was bad in rehearsal mm -hmm. until Moss Hart shut down and taught her how to act. And it wasn't until they got out of town and the show was proven to be a success and where she stepped up to the plate and sort of guided him through sits probes and shit like that that he got nicer to her. I wish Moss Hart had been available when you were going to college. We could have hired him, and I could have saved four years of tuition. Sure, sure. Not, uh, I mean, you know how to do this, but it could have been a lot fa he faster did it. and cheaper. He did it in a weekend. Yes, and Julie Andrews has an Oscar. I don't. Uh, we digress. We go back to Kimberly Akimbo. She's an EGOT, isn't she? No, because she doesn't have a Tony. Maybe it's a lifetime achievement Tony, but she doesn't have a competitive one. She did win a Tony for My Fair Lady? I believe she lost to Judy Holliday in Bells Are Ringing, which is a tough one to go up against. Bell? That's a star vehicle, and it was Judy fucking Holliday. Far be it for me to criticize the late, great Judy Holliday. But... Yeah. I don't remember who beat her when she did Camelot, but... She wasn't as good in Camelot. Camelot also just wasn't as good in yeah. general. Yeah. No one wins a Tony for singing the lusty month of May. You get nominated. You don't win. Uh, although no, uh, no Eliza Doolittle has won the Tony on Broadway, or the Oscar for that matter. Poor Audrey. We digress. Kimberly Akimbo. With Victoria's performance, what I really appreciate, especially each time I watch it, is that I think with her body. She's able to convey the 16-year-old that Kimberly Lovato exactly. is. She, and she, she's using her body to be a girl. Yes. What I like about her voice and also what I think the score is really smart to do. Because I remember when the show was at the Atlantic Off-Broadway and then when it was in previews, people would complain about the music that they thought that the score should be transposed for Victoria so she could use her chest more because she wasn't sounding young. To which I say... She, her character is almost 16, but her body is 65. So I think the score is actually very smart in how Vicky uses her voice in that there are times where you can hear the 16-year-old inflection, but she's still 
an older body. She's got to sound old sometimes. And I think that's very smart. Oh, but she doesn't sound 80, which no. is how old her body is. No, her body isn't 80. Her body is... What's the life expectancy? Yeah, you know, no. Whatever you said. Well, well, so that's so. the scene she has with Seth Wiedis before Anagram where they talk about her disease, because the whole reason they get together is uh, they partner up for their bio class to do a presentation on a disease. And they decide to do her disease, which they never actually say the name of. And as he's fact-checking some stuff that he looked up about it and, you know, asking her, he asks her, you know, how the chromosomes work. Okay, you get one chromosome from the mom, one from the dad. If both parents have it, there's always going to be a 25% chance that the child will have it, which is important, y'all, because then there's a big reveal in Act 2. But the other thing he asks is, oh, so when you were uh, 8, you looked 32. When uh, he's like, And when you're 20, you'll, you'll look, she's like, I guess I'll look about 90. She goes, but the average life expectancy is 16. It's just an average, though, which is one of those. 64. I, yeah. So even it, I can do the yeah, math. But, you, oh God, every time she says it's just an average, it's just, that's one of the most heartbreaking lines in the show to me. Because she doesn't say it with asking for pity. She's trying to sort of shrug it off. But you know 16 is fast approaching for her. Uh, but yeah, the the idea is that she's in her mid-60s. And so there is a combination of having to both sound young and old that I think she does really well. And it's really fucking hard to do. I haven't managed it. No, your you're, you're essence I, is young. I don't get paid to do it, though. So This is true. Well, actually, no, I take that back. You've been an old soul since you were like nine, according to Grandma. <laughs> grandma has said that you were basically a middle-aged man in elementary school. Thank you. I don't think that's a diss. You know, I have this I have this image of you as a child like dressing up in your jacket and tie for Riverdale and just take and there walk like you're walking into work with a briefcase. That's how I view you. Mm, I don't think uh I've ever communicated to you what having a 4-year older brother was like. You've, and the degree to which my personality was molded by that. Well, having a four-year-old older brother who was Rick. Let's be. Let's. That's the other thing. It's we're every, not gonna. No, what I'm saying is that the person matters just as much as all the other details, right? I have a sister who is two and a half years older than me, and it's Laura. If it weren't Laura, the circumstances would be very different. Like if Sarah Davini were my two and a half year older sister, it'd be a very different dynamic. In the same way that just because Kimberly's parents were 16 when they had her doesn't mean that all parents of that age bracket are like Kimberly's parents, you know? Kimberly's parents are sort of the uh, antidote to Lorelai Gilmore of Gilmore Girls, which tells you, oh, you can be friends with your kid if you have them at 16, whereas Kimberly Akimbo's like, sure, but if your parents are mentally stunted and emotionally stunted, you can't be friends with them. In fact, you end up taking care of them more than they take care of you. Um... That sort of happens to everybody if we live long enough. Yes, but not when you're 16. Hasn't happened to you yet, but we're getting there. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that Kimberly kind of sings about in Act 2, though, in her uh, big goodbye song, Before I Go, where she sings, you know, I was never the daughter you wanted. You wanted someone who would hold your hand as you got older, and that's not going to happen with us, which in a way is kind of why her mom 
isn't sort of shut down towards Kimberly. Like, it's very, like, her mom loves her, but you can kind of tell that the idea of openly loving her too much will be too painful for the day when Kimberly eventually will die, which is going to happen sooner rather than later. That's true. Yeah. I I think that speaks a lot to what's going on with the mother. I mean, she was going to be prom queen. Such disloyal voters. Such disloyal voters. Come on, give her one (laughs) last burst of glory before she gives birth to a titty-sucking parasite, otherwise known as a child. The dad is a little more openly... You're welcome. You're did you have to go there? Sure I mean, did. Was, was, was that an enhancement to the podcast? 1,000%. Oh. This is what my I guess you know your audience. Sure do, baby. I don't like the way this feels, and I don't want to see them flirt, and I don't want him near my Kim, because I don't want her getting hurt. I think I need to shut this down. I think I let it go too far. I need to nip this in the bud. I need to stop this speeding car. Enough! My daughter is a precious flower. I won't allow her to be picked. Oh, God. Why? Now, I'm not trying to be mean, and I don't mean to be a But the dad in Kimberly, uh, God, what's his name? Buddy. Buddy is a little more earnestly loving towards Kimberly. He's also more self-aware. Yeah, but he—he's more, or tries to be more there for her than the mom does. He's probably more of a fuck up than she is. He's a—he is an alcoholic. Actually, booze will do that to you. Yeah, he's constant. And but I mean, one of the moments in the show that I have had people say to me that they hated because they thought it was so mean spirited. To which I'm like, no, it's devastating because he was trying and he just wasn't able to is he keeps on promising Kimberly that they'll go to great adventure in six flags. Uh, and in act one, halfway through act one, he shows up late one night home drunk, having done another bar bet, the mango, the mango always wins, puts the mango in his mouth and he shows up with, par- uh, park passes to great adventure. And Kimberly is excited for all of 60 seconds until she realizes that the passes expired two years ago. And buddy doesn't know this. He genuinely thought he was about to do a wonderful thing for his daughter. He thought he was about to come through for her for once. And he yet again fucked up. And that is devastating. I'm listening to everything you're saying, and I cannot get out of my consciousness. Titty-sucking parasite. You're very fucking welcome. That was was so unnecessary. Sure was not. It sure was not. I, I, you know, it was difficult for me to get that phrase out. Well, why should that you? is truly something that I have never and will never again say. First of all, Walt Whitman's got nothing on me. Second of all, hold on to it forever. These are the things that stay with you. <laughs> My father is holding on to his diaphragm because he cannot contain himself. I have ruined my father. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the end of Peter Koplik as we know it. Uh, Matthew's mission is accomplished and his work is done. <laughs> There's nothing left that he needs to do. <laughs> You're very welcome. Aren't you so glad that I'm your son? Of course I am. Uh, not necessarily for the reasons that you think I should be, <laughs> but I certainly am. Listening to the cast album, were there any songs that stuck out to you in particular? Uh, yes. 
in a word now mm-hmm. before I go. The, the last three songs in general. This time. This time makes me cry every single performance that I see of it. That's it. Those were the only songs that made an impact on you? Uh, no, you said, were there any? And I said, here are three. So let's talk about this time for a quick second. Act one, as we get towards the end of act one, uh, Kimberly's... It's it's actually evocative of uh, the song in Cabaret. Maybe this time. Yeah, well, they share two words. I won't say it's the same song with a different melody, but I mean, well, actually, no. It's the same there, thing. There's literally the lyric in the song this time. Maybe this time. Maybe this time. Maybe this time. As we get towards the end of Act One, Kimberly's aunt Deborah has implied that she's got a scheme that she would like to get Kimberly's help on. Kimberly says no, uh, and her parents both don't acknowledge her birthday. Her mom just flat out doesn't acknowledge it. I think it's too painful for her. Whereas her father fully just forgets. And. I love how the song begins because they reference moments earlier in the show when her father says, do you remember what you said, how you hated me, wished I was dead, that my car would go off the road and it would explode? Well, I thought to myself, that can't be good for a daughter to say. (laughs) I think that's so funny. And then her mom says, "Uh, you told me about that story you read, and I was thrilled till you explained who Medea had killed. And I thought to myself, that can't be good for a daughter to say. And so the song is sort of everyone's hope that after all the times they've been disappointed, this will be the moment where everything changes. And of course it isn't, for any of them. One of the things that age and wisdom bring you is the realization that that's rare. Yeah. I don't want to say impossible, it's rare. It's rare, especially when there's been a pattern, right? It's one thing if it's, you know, human error and the randomness of life makes things difficult sometimes. But when there's a pattern with certain people and certain relationships that just keep on coming back to the same problems, it's the definition of of madness, right? You do the same thing over and over again, hoping for a new result and it never happens. And of course that's exactly what happens with Kimberly and her parents at the end of act two, right before, before I go. And this time always just makes me cry. Partly because it's the first moment in the show where Kimberly's actually joyful because everything seems like it could go well for her. I also cry with the show choir because they sing um, It's Friday Night in Bergen County. There are parties everywhere and we finally got invited. I just makes me, I I don't know. It's just the joy of it makes me really happy. And I cry also knowing that it's not going to go how they all plan. You got invited to a lot of parties of the kids that you were going to school with. Yeah, you just weren't going to school in Bergen County. Yeah, I, I, well, no. First of all, I was being invited to Bergen County parties when I was going to school in Bergen County because it was the age where you invited everyone in your class or you got in trouble. Uh, and I think my child brain knew that, which is why I had anxiety about going to a lot of those parties because part of me knew that the person whose birthday it was didn't really want me there. I was invited out of obligation. There were people who invited me because they wanted me there, and I had better times at those parties. With the benefit of hindsight, are you able to... Do you think to determine accurately which party was which? Oh, yeah. And you think you knew at the time accurately? I don't think I knew that's what it was I was feeling. I don't think I could pinpoint that that's what the anxiety was. But do you, I have a distinct memory of going to a party. I think it was third grade. And you were driving me. And it was at a, it was like the Taekwondo place in Tenafly. 
and I wouldn't get out of the car. I started having a panic attack. And I think inherently I knew, even though I couldn't understand it at the time, because I was young, I knew that the person whose party it was didn't really want me there. And I did not feel comfortable going. Think of how much money I could have saved if I realized this stuff. Think how much money we all could save if we started getting our children to therapy younger and mm. being able to properly express their emotions. Understand what was going on. Yeah. Uh, well, you know. Knowledge is power, we're... baby, both in terms of the world and your own goddamn psyche and emotions. Get into it, hunty. We are, after all, only people. And people who need people are the luckiest people in the world. Don't agree with that lyric, but it is a famous one. Bushwa. Yep. Bob, sorry, Bob Merrill. You're trash. Uh, seem to work for them, though. Financially speaking, sure. Maybe it's time to throw caution to the I was listening to now and thinking about something your mother said over and over when you were growing up and that has stayed with me, uh, which is, you know, be here now. Don't, don't just mail it in or pretend you're listening or go through the motions. Mm -hmm. If you're going to do it, do it. Yeah. Go in. Uh, be here now is good. Uh, I, I think that's very expressive. Uh, and as I said, she emphasized it. I'm not sure it was original with her. I think she had heard it, but she popularized it in our family. Sure. At least to me and to some extent you. I don't know about your sister. I mean, did Robin Williams really come up with Carpe Diem and Dead Poets Society? Probably not. But it's what we associate it with. Mama's wise. Mama was on the Torch Song Trilogy episode for anybody who wants to listen to that episode. Uh, no, it's – well, so now also it's about just in, uh, enjoying the moment, if not necessarily living it to its fullest of just like, be, as you said, being present. Well, apropos of being moved by a song, are you supposed to be moved by how to watch a check? 1,000%. Because <laughs> if they do it wrong, those kids are going to jail, and I, the stakes are very high. It's a tutorial. Yes. It's one of the funny songs in the, in the show. I mean, I think all of Deborah's stuff, uh, played to perfection by Bonnie Milligan, is hilarious. Uh, Better is one of my favorite comedy songs of the last few years. Better is Aunt Deborah's song to Kimberly to convince mm. her to help her with her life of crime. Make your effing life better. Yes, make your shitty life better. Uh, it has... Might have been a be better... Well, no, because they, they... I will say, this show, in the score anyway, uses curse words very effectively because, first, the only people who really curse in the show are Kimberly's parents and aunt, and... You know, Kimberly's trying to get the parents to not curse more. They have a whole curse swear jar that they put coins into in the hopes that it'll be enough money to go to Disney I World. tried that with you and your sister. Didn't it work. It didn't work. No. Uh, although I think Particularly I didn't work with your sister. Well, she works in finance, so if you don't have a shitty vocabulary, you're not taken seriously. We've all seen Wolf of Wall Street, or parts of it. And with Deborah, with Better, it's mostly just the word shitty. She just says shitty a lot. She uses fuck once, and it is in perhaps 
my favorite lyric of the whole show. After she has told Kimberly about the Greek man who was possibly gay, who needed a green card, so they got married, and now he's dead, supposedly. Uh, the old woman who was legally blind and thought that she was her daughter and so gave her all of her precious jewelry. And Kimberly says, this is your advice? Take advantage of sick old ladies? No! no not just them. Not just them. <laughs> so good. And then, starts off with, when life gives you lemons. gives you lemons when life gives you lemons and now father what is the normal motto for when life gives you lemons what do we usually say you're supposed to say make lemonade however she does not say that she's and and they build up to it they do it they repeat it a couple times they really build up to it you gotta go out That is well genius. Because you're not entirely sure where it's going to go. You think it's going to go to Lemonade, and then it takes that turn, and it's the only time she says fuck in the song, and it's used so well. I think Not Just Them is a better line. Well, Not Just Them is smarter, but <laughs> because we have the power of music, it is more effective. Uh, not Just Them, though, is more predictable. That was, I mean, it's really logical. Sure. Yeah. It's also the way that Bonnie Milligan says it. because, And I I was listening to her interview about this. So when the show was first done as a play in, I think, 2003, Anna Gasteyer actually played the aunt in that production of Manhattan Theatre Club. Manhattan Theatre Club loves David Lindsay Abair. And she had played it much more as a butch lesbian, which is how the character is really written as, although they, kind of, they don't really talk about her sexuality in the musical version. But she's much more of an overt butch lesbian in the play and Anna played her a lot broader and when Bonnie Milligan came in for her audition she did it a lot more dry and quieter very sort of uh deadpan which they ended up really loving so when she says things like uh this is your uh, when Vicky says this is your advice to take advantage of sick old ladies on stage Bonnie actually says it a lot quieter than she says on the cast album where she's like no not just them and it's so wonderful it's it, the whole thing. It's 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 things that you expect, but not how you expect it to be said, and that's part of the genius of the comedy of this show. Uh, it's and called acting. It's called acting, my dear boy. Look it up. I also really love. Um, I mean, I think the opening number is lovely. I think this this show has a wonderful "I Want" song. Now, the "I Want" song, Father, is as Howard Ashman describes it when he told the animators at Disney right before the, he birthed out the Disney renaissance for them. He described the I Want song as when our leading lady, somewhere in the second or third song of the show, sits down on a tree stump and tells us what it is she wants out of life. Uh, it's not always that specific. He, he, he was... In this case, legs. Yes, he was, he was mixing shows. He was mixing My Fair Lady with Brigadoon. He was saying when Eliza Doolittle sits on a tree stump and tells us she wants a room somewhere. And turns into Ariel. Yes, then becomes, yes, part of your world, which is if not the best I want song, I might I think it is, but if we can disagree on if it's the best, it's certainly the most iconic, the most world renowned. Uh it is pretty iconic. But anyway, he says it's when our leading lady tells us what she wants. And 
the song in Kimberly Akimbo, that is the I Want song, is called Make a Wish. And it is Kimberly writing to the Make-A-Wish Foundation of New Jersey. Because she is, technically speaking, dying. She is about to turn 16 years old with a disease that has a life expectancy of 16. And she's asked, and she has, she's allowed to put in three wishes. And the song is structured with her first attempt at filling out the form, which she immediately erases because she's tr- she's trying a little too hard. She's trying to be endearing, and she's making jokes that just aren't funny. Ha ha, smiley face. I don't want to cut you off. No, cut me off! The good news is she gets one of her wishes. The bad news is it's the wrong one. It's the cheapest one, (laughs) which she predicts. She says, uh, you're like a genie. You uh, you ask for three wishes, but you only grant one of them. I guess, I I bet you pick whatever's cheapest. Ha ha, smiley face. Which she's right about. They picked the tree She made the mistake of following their rules. She should have just said, given them one. Or gone for broke with all three wishes so when she when she tries again she does the next the song is then structured into three wishes the first wish is i want to be a model for a day a famous fashion muse in a black dior cocktail dress and a pair of jimmy chews i'll run from paparazzi and throw some diva fits then hurry to a photo shoot with Annie Leibowitz Everyone will stare at me But not in the usual way They'll say that I am beautiful So she wants them to treat her to an Annie Leibowitz photo shoot and get called beautiful. Her second wish is a fancy cruise on a yacht with some friends that she doesn't have at the time. Far from Jersey, power lies Far from Newark Bay And then the third wish, she goes, okay, I got to make this one count. And then she starts, she starts with a treehouse, and then she goes, no, 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 I got to think bigger. I got to think bigger. They'll give me anything. And she just starts spitballing ideas. A pet monkey. She wants to hang glide. She wants to see the world. She wants to go to Sweden and China, New Zealand. How about a hyperbaric chamber or a bodyguard or stilt? I want to walk on stilt. I want to bungee jump in Sweden. I want to go to China and New Zealand and St. Louis. God, this is the part where I'm just like, oh, God, this song is so actable. Her parents don't cook. Table for three. Yep, paper napkin. She just wants to live like a normal family for a day. And it's, my God, it's, oh, I get, I get teary just thinking about it. This, Because it's not, okay, okay. I really hate being told what to feel when I watch something. We have talked about this. This is one of your pet peeves with Spielberg as a director. Is that he often? Well, first of all, you know, no one can tell someone else how to feel. You feel what you feel. Yeah. You can tell them what they think is wrong. You can tell them that what they feel is, in your opinion, not appropriate to the situation, but it's appropriate to them. How you feel is how you feel. And um, yeah, I don't like being told what to feel. Uh, I don't like being hit over the head. And I also don't like uh, the over-reliance on score in a movie 
to create an emotion yeah. that should be organic. Which is one of your complaints about Spielberg is yeah. that he does that a lot. There's a moment in The Post with Meryl where oh. she's given this big speech about the importance of news media. And it's just zooming in on her as she gives this speech as a West Wing trumpet starts to play. And you're like, okay, Spielberg, enough. Well, I'm an outlier on this. I think most people uh, wouldn't agree with me. And his success and popularity speak to he knows what he's doing and he knows what his audience wants. Sure, but have you met most people? Most people suck. No, um, I, I hear you. I, the thing about Spielberg... Strike two. <laughs> you know how you start with a left jab to the jaw and then you come with a right cross to the gut? Jesus Christ. No, so, we started with the left jab and this was the right. Bam, bam. I'm Muhammad Ali, baby. Maybe I just have a glass jaw. The... We're, we don't have to talk about Spielberg much longer, but like, <laughs> you watch something like ET or Raiders of the Lost Ark, where you know it's, he's doing similar things of not necessarily telling you how to feel, but having the exact right music for the moment where you're supposed to feel the thing. But it feels less manipulative in his earlier movies. Post Saving Private Ryan, it's, I feel like that's sort of the last movie where he stopped telling you how to feel in a moment. Uh, he sort of made it easy to feel certain things in certain moments. But like once we got into the 2000s, it became much more like. Here's the inspirational part. Here are the tears part. And I don't love it. But some people do. Kimberly Akimbo. I bring this up because Kimberly Akimbo, I was reading a criticism someone had on a message board that will re remain nameless, but y'all can guess what it is. And I'm sure you can go on the thread and find this person, this very stupid person, who saw the show and their two main criticisms were they hated the parents. They thought the parents were just so awful they should, you know, be euthanized essentially i'm like listen they're not bad people they're bad parents they are fuck-ups of people which is partly why they are bad parents but that's a we've already kind of talked about that a bit their other complaint was that the show was trying to ask our sympathy for kimberly when she it was clear that the character didn't want it or something like that to which i first say the fuck does that even mean you just put seven words together to create a sentence that makes no sense, sir. Second of all, I don't think the show is telling you to sympathize with Kimberly. The show is simply presenting Kimberly to you. And a lot of her situation does warrant sympathy. But the show is not putting a neon sign around Victoria Clark saying, feel bad for this girl. Wish number three. A tree house. Thank you for your consideration. Kimberly Lovaco. Smiley face. They make her smart. They make her independent. They, she never cries for herself. You know, she has a lot of bad shit in her life, but she also has some decent shit, and she's also trying to make the most of it. Yeah, the, the last thing you said is the point I think that you're supposed to come away from the show with. Which, which is? Uh, she's... Busy living, not busy dying. Trying to, yeah. Her And her parents, she says to them, like, you've given up. You know, her dad uh, has a dead-end job at a gas station, which is not, there's no shame in that, but he has no motivation to do anything else. He's drinking his life away. Her mom is basically sitting on the couch waiting for the baby to arrive and living as an invalid. And her aunt is trying to find all the shortcuts so she can get money to go off and be happier somewhere else. Not that that'll ever happen for her. She's got to actually, she's got to actually, you know, work for that. 
uh, which I do love that it ends with her having an actual job. It's like, Christian, you know where my line came from. What? Shawshank Redemption. Get busy living or get busy dying. Mm. I haven't seen the movie in a while. Oh. I mean, I've, I've seen the movie. I've seen it twice, actually, but I haven't seen it in about 10 years. That movie is a great movie, and you don't realize how great it is until the last 25 minutes where it's playing a long, long game with you. It is, y'all, it's good. Similar to Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind. You're watching it, and you're thinking, this is pretty good. And then the last 20 minutes hit, and you're like, oh, this is what the whole thing's been setting up. Here we go. Domino effect. A large carrot at the end of a long stick. Just, 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 just. Um, on that note, let's take one last break. Really, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow collar. You're the top. You're a Coolidge dollar. You're the nymph. And we're back. Again, this show does not tell you what to think, and it presents very flawed people. Uh, even the people who are their, who are the nicest in the show are flawed because no one realizes the microaggressions they're enacting towards Kimberly. Yeah. With Seth, with Seth and Kimberly's first sort of like quote unquote meet cute before anagram, he says quite a few things that are rude to her. But he's young and his brain isn't fully developed yet, so he doesn't realize half the shit he's saying to her is is rude. And in fact, they make a joke of it because after like the third rude thing he says accidentally, he then looks at her and he goes, "Oh, I'm sorry. Are you sensitive?" And he doesn't say it like. You gonna cry? He's like, oh, should I like should I be a little more careful about what I'm saying? And we laugh because it breaks the tension. I like the the line in the song. I've been a good kid. Yeah. What's it gotten me? Yeah, yeah. He's tried really hard to. I be thought good. that's very real. Absolutely. Allie Gordon doesn't love that song. She thinks it's uh, tw- uh, twice as long as it should be. But I I like the song as it is. So Allie. Sorry about it. I'm only quoting one line. No, I know. I, it's listen. I think probably is too long. Eh, most good things, work, Allie. Sure, thank you. <laughs> most things are. We could probably cut a verse if we're being really uh, harsh about it, but I like it as it is. But I mean, another moment in the show. I don't want to call it a microaggression because it's not really that. It's just <laughs> these kids not understanding what it, the situation around them, which is. The four show choir kids, Seth and Kimberly, are playing Uno right before class, before they do their disease bit, and they're doing um, the reprise of Skater Planet, and they're all fantasizing about the lives they're going to have when they get out of high school. I'm going to get a job here. I'm going to go to college at MIT. I'm going to get a job here. I'm going to move to London. I'm never coming back to New Jersey. The one person who isn't singing is Kimberly. And when you watch the show, it's hard Mm. to tell on the cast album. When you watch the show, it's them all sitting around in a circle, and Victoria Clark is looking out at the audience with this expression of realization that everything that they are fantasizing is not going to happen for her just because realistically she's not going to have the time that they have. And they don't realize that that's what they're doing to her, but that's what they're doing to her. They're about themselves. They're teenagers. Yeah. Again, it's not mean spirited. They just don't, they're in a joyful moment. They're excited about the future and in a way, it's nice that they don't think of Kimberly. Well, you don't anymore. want to take that away from them, but they don't have to rub her nose in it. They don't realize that that's what that's, they're doing. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because they've now become because they're teenagers, and they're, they're also now friends with Kimberly. And when you have a certain comfort and casualness with people, there's a part of your guard that you let down because you're no longer on alert about their boundaries. You're just sort of being yourself with them, and there's yeah, they just aren't aware of. Empathy that... is rarely a prominent quality in teenagers. With a lot of people, mm. I would argue. If there's one thing that this show, I think, 
should teach audiences, which is a, sure, it's a bitter note to think about, but it's something that's very realistic, and it's something that I written, I've written in my play, is people can love you and still hurt you, right? A family member, a friend, it's, it happens. Um, you hope that it's by accident. You hope. Sometimes it's not. Uh, with Kimberly Akimbo, I think what makes it not super mean is that nobody in the show is trying to hurt each other. Everyone just has their own stuff going on, and not everyone is as self-aware as they should be. And I think when the show ends, everyone gets a little more self-awareness and a little more growth, and the window of opportunity for redemption for everyone just gets a little bit wider. No one is fixed at the end. Nobody has done a total 180, but there's a chance for everyone to get better. That's why sort of the uh, Kimberly's parents' baby, Carmelita, that's the baby name that Kimberly has given her, is sort of a second chance for them to do better. Um, and it's sad and hopeful in the same way because Kimberly has let go of her parents in a very cathartic way for her. So allowing them to sort of try again with this baby. It's the only way she can live her life. Yep. She's got to cut ties. I don't want to say her dream, but she's trying to live her dream and she can't do that. With her parents. No. She tried. And she tried over and over. And, it ca- and it... to their credit, they tried too. Yeah. They couldn't. Yeah. So, granted, I'm famously extraordinarily young and level-headed and perfect, and I've never had any Perpetually damage. Perpetually young. Yes. I've never Forever had, young. Never had any damage happen to me in any way. 2022 was pitch perfect for me. But... The experiences that I have had and that I've and the people that I have watched, it is I can't say baffling to me because I watch it happen in these stories and stories like Kimberly Akimbo, and I recognize it and I see it. I just get frustrated watching it happen over and over again for so many people. How many times people will hit themselves on the head with the hammer until they finally realize that they have to walk away. You know, whether that's a job, whether that's a partner, a family member, what have you. And the only thing that I've seen people regret when they do it is not doing it sooner. But you ask yourself, how many times before it's enough? And Kimberly is the one who finally cuts the ties, not her parents. People regret they didn't do it sooner at the time they've concluded that it was the right thing to do. They didn't do it sooner because it was not clear to them. Sure. So. Sure. You know, you're second guessing your own judgment and your own experience at a time when you didn't necessarily um, have clarity. It's a time when you're saying to yourself, maybe this time. Well, I I see it slightly differently. It's more the Mm 80-20 rule of human relations. Is there a human relation that's 100 to 0? I've seen some that are 0 to 100. (laughs) Uh, They make great stories. And my parents, who had about as good a relationship, as good a marriage as I've ever seen, 98 to 95, 5, wasn't 100 0. And that's just what you saw. uh, Might have been 90 10. I don't think it was worse than 90-10, though. Probably not. And, I mean, 
I don't think we can really ask Grandma anymore because she views that entire time with rose-colored glasses. But that's one of the things that makes her her and makes her life. uh, And that she drinks, she drinks Chardonnay like it's water. That also makes her her. (laughs) Although she is drinking water more often now. Thank God. Thanks, Sally. Uh, Proceed. Well, so your mother. Okay. I have tried to pitch this show to grandma many times. I've tried to get her to see this many times. She has been steadfast about not seeing it. She hears the premise and she goes, absolutely not. That sounds so depressing. A teenage girl with this disease where she's aging four times fast. And I kept telling her, you don't understand. The show is actually very funny. It's actually surprisingly optimistic. The the And we will talk about the final number and, and how that works because, my God, is it uh, a surprising sucker punch uh, in a beautiful way. I don't want to dwell on my mother. No, but I'm, I'm uh, not. But this... She would like the show, but a lot of it, she wouldn't hear the words, and it moves a little fast for her to pick up on. Well, that's, that's a conversation she and I can have uh, if she does decide to see it. But when I was pitching this to her back in November, December, I said, you don't understand. The show is actually really good. And she liked Fun Home, or so she says. She said she really loved Fun Home. Uh but I said to her, you know, Grandma, this show is going to probably win Best Musical. And again, I'll go into more reasons why for that in the next week's episode. But she wouldn't, she just wouldn't budge. She wanted to see dancing. And now that you've seen it, and you have agreed with me that she would probably like the show. Oh, she, she, maybe she wouldn't hear all of it, but we can do our best to get her a good seat with good... Well, the other thing is you would have to explain what was going on throughout the show before she went so that when it happened, she yeah. would recognize I, it. I would give her sort of a run, a basic rundown of the plot of Act 1. You know, then, by the way, she's going to listen to this podcast. I hope so. She listened to your Follies episode. She's dying to... She wanted to come today and watch... From the cheap seats. How do you think Grandma's going to feel about my language? Uh, I think she'll adjust to that. She's heard me say these things before. This this is the same woman who, when we had dinner with her last week, and she said, well, Matt, you know, I'm in very good shape, but uh, I, I do get vertigo. And I said, well, babe, you are top heavy. This is the relationship I have with my grandma, everybody, with everyone in my life. This is what I say. She loves it. We have we have a running joke about the low-cut blouses she wears. You didn't call her pear-shaped. No, she's not pear-shaped. She's got décolletage. I love my grandmother. She's an icon. She's 99, everybody. 99 and still going to see theater. She came to see the New York City Gay Men's Chorus performance. She's the oldest person I know who goes to the theater. Yeah, and can still understand most of it. Most of it. Listen, most is not none. It's not even half. <laughs> You know what she would like about dancing? She doesn't have to pay attention to any of the words. And oh boy, are there words in that show. As I've said in my review, for a show called Dancing, there's a fuck ton of talking. Uh, how would you, though, pitch this show to Grandma to convince her to see it? Because I know she would I like would it. I would start with, it's funny and it's not sad. And it sort of has a happy ending. As happy an ending as this plot line can have. Bittersweet, I would say. Which is the anagram for Seth uh, Wiedis. I would say uh, there is uplift. Yeah. It's, it's Seth Brett Wiedis translates into I the mean, bittersweets. As Woody Allen once said of one of one of his pieces, 
we want to sell some tickets here. You know? Yeah, there's that's that's something I've talked about before on this podcast with shows, and this is not Game of Thrones. No, well, ironically, although Game, Game of, of Thrones, Thrones has, has a lot more sex in it, so it also has a huge also has a huge fan base. So there goes that. That's theory. how you sell tickets. But I have said before on this podcast about a lot of writers in the theater who I think are very intelligent and very talented. A lot of them have a bit of a resentment towards having to perform their works for an audience. And you can tell sometimes when those pieces happen, where it's an interesting concept. There's something, there's some meat in there, but it's almost like they hate the fact that we have paid to watch it. Cause that by, cause then we are allowed to judge it. And that's just sort of how art works. And unfortunately, there are a lot of stupid people out there who go online and share their opinions. But with something like Kimberly Akimbo, I don't think that David Lindsay Abair and Janine Tesori hate the audience. I think they like the audience and they want to engage with the audience. I've never thought about this the way you just described it. And I think I understand what you're saying. I don't think that the creator hates that somebody paid to hear it. They hate that they had to adapt their vision to suit an audience and make it work to an audience. Well, they want their vision purely presented to be appealing. Tell the listeners. Not to mention lucrative. Tell the listeners about your inner monologue when you saw John Wood in Travesties back in the 70s. What the hell was that? Yeah, you watched it? And the other thing I said is, I'm a fairly literate, what, 23-year-old who's probably at the height of what has been increasingly deteriorating intellectual power. And I don't get what you're doing. Who did you write this for? Yeah. Who did you write travesties for, Tom Stoppard? And then when you and I saw it together, when we saw your friend Richard do it at Sag Harbor, you know, I I got a lot more of it much later. Between the two of us, you had seen the show once before, so you knew sort of what to expect. You knew a good deal about that era, and I knew a lot about Oscar Wilde. And between the two of us, we had a good chunk of the data art movement in our pocket. And collectively, I think we understood about 60% of that play. That is saying something. And that's a majority, but it's not a vast majority. So you ask yourself, Tom Stoppard, you know, and we don't, it's not about censoring. It's not about trying to curb creativity. But you ask yourself, if you're creating something, you know there are people who are going to be watching this. Do you want them to be befuddled or do you want them to be invested? And Travesties is a play that, I mean, I think I know two people who like that play. Two. And honestly, I like those people. I consider them friends, but they, uh, they're they a bit of esoteric people. I don't like to put myself or try to put myself inside the mind of Tom Stoppard. Good uh, luck. Way beyond my pay grade. Uh, I wonder. I mean, that seems to be a moment in his career when he wasn't making accommodations. Yeah. He probably made accommodations later on uh, with some of his other popular work. Uh, But his early stuff, I don't think he was... Plus it was the 70s and cocaine is a hell of a drug. Wasn't that popular in the early 70s? This was late 70s. This was 77. Travesties? I think it was 77. 
Maybe 76. Let, keep talking. Let me look this up. I'm pretty sure that's when it was. Cocaine was popular by, the, by 77, was it not? I mean, it's what got Patti LuPone through all of Evita. And when was Evita? 79. Uh, uh, not something um. Not something you're here to comment well, on? Well, no. I was going to say it's not something about which I am sufficiently knowledgeable. The rise, fall, rise, fall, rise, fall in the popularity of various drugs. Mm. Um, so Travesties was premiered in England in 74 and premiered on Broadway in 76. So Later than I thought. Yeah, but... I still had a few marbles left at that point. Yeah. Yeah, Coke was, was prominent in the 70s by that point, right? Not among people I knew, but... Well... We should have gotten you in the theater community more. You weren't around then, Matt. It's true. It's true. And now, you know, all these years later, I'm still not immersed in the theater community. Good for you. You get to enjoy the theater and you don't get to see how the sausage gets made or meet any of the people. Because some of them are lovely, but some of them are bonkers. Uh, Is that supposed to make that community unique? What community isn't like that? Most communities are like that for sure. I I worked in the movie business. (laughs) Emphasized business. Well, let's go into entertainment then. And I once asked uh, a friend of mine who had a very successful and powerful position at a movie company. Mm -hmm. Is it the craziness that makes them successful and rich or is it the money that makes them crazy uh and he said that the thin line between success and failure creates an insecurity that makes them crazy there's also the distinction between incredible wealth and power and uh, very little success, both as a performer and as an executive, uh, just creates an insecurity that um, gets a lot of a lot of people. People in theater aren't that rich or powerful. The reason I say theater is mostly just because I have the most firsthand experience in this community, and I also don't want to generalize. We were literally just talking five hours ago, about how sort of well-rounded a person Victoria Clark is because of the career she has had. And that is true of a lot of people. There is a lot of people in theater who actually are fucking functional human beings. That's wonderful. It's not always the case. The thing is that the Broadway community definitely promotes itself as all-inclusive, all-understanding, and progressive, and you know, it's all this stuff. And there's a lot of that mentality shown but there's also just a lot of a lot of cut wires a lot of a lot of miswiring with a lot of members and part of this is because and i've mentioned this before to be a performer to be a writer to be a creative in some respect there has to be a little bit of your brain that is broken well yeah as you said uh genius often requires some crazy Michigas. Yeah, a little bit of madness. I mean, think about people like Mozart who burned so brightly and then crashed and burned. People like Brando or Orson Welles. 
uh, What's interesting Virginia to Wolf, me, Sylvia Plath, is, um, you know, the there's the inspiration crazy continuum, mm-hmm. and I see Elon Musk started really inspirational and genius, and that's dropping and the crazy's increasing. Yeah, and I wonder, uh, you know, was it always like this? This isn't a guy I know. I only know what I observe of him, what he says in public, the things he does. Uh, But he seems to be pretty uncensored. And he may be a person that is, in fact, the way he appears to the world, in which case the crazy is way, way out of control. That also comes from surrounding yourself with nothing but yes men for so many years. I I wonder if being the richest to the fifth richest guy in the world yeah you know has messed him up oh, yeah. uh but you know an, another subject about which we digress uh, that we've talked about yeah. before is i've certainly seen and you probably have as well people who are really really good at one thing think they know everything about everything mm-hmm. uh a generalization, but one that I have seen, you know, and, and and I don't know that I've known that many people who are that good at anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some professional athletes, some people who are really successful in business or performers or creators uh, and writers as... Uh, insecure as writers often are Mm -hmm. or at least as they are uh cliched to be carry with them more humility yeah well i think the writer might be because they get beaten up so much the writer being the star is not very frequent it happens and we've seen it you know throughout the decades like a Tennessee Williams or an Arthur Miller, and then now with like an Aaron Sorkin. uh, And you know know the medium where the writer uh, thrives is television. Well, we are in a golden age of television. so And and unlike movies where the director is God, TV, the writer is God. Absolutely. And and theater, it's a bit more of a collaboration of director and writer, supposedly, if, if, if it is a good working situation. But I say this because, first of all, I want to also say, like, you know, there's a difference between mental health and, and the artistic madness that I'm referring to earlier of just there are there are full on oh. geniuses in the theatrical world that often are troubled and also have a lot of um, baggage. I wonder if what I said about writers carrying humility with them applies to writers in television. Because... Some of the showrunners, yeah, well, again, that's whose creation uh, don't necessarily have the same reputation for humility. It's the power thing. Give someone some yeah. power, and who knows what's going to happen to them. It's why I wouldn't know. <laughs> everyone's got to get knocked down a peg once or twice just for you know their own ego. But um, I bring this up because, again, with artists. In general, and I don't, and I say this just as anyone who's trying to do anything on the creative spectrum, theater, film, TV, literature, what have you. 
you are creative spectrum that sounds like a redundancy <laughs> especially but especially with a show you are trying to capture a human experience eight times a week for a specific amount of time with a very specific structure that requires a little bit of being a sociopath just a just a skosh just a touch just a just a tablespoon and there's really no in order to really go for broke and as my mother said, if you're going to do the thing, do the thing. If you're really going to try to... here now. If you're going to make the thing as good as you can, not just what's most marketable, not just what flatters your ego, surrounding yourself with yes men, really trying to make something special that can last beyond that moment, last beyond you. There's It requires a bit of bravery, a little bit of messiness, and a little bit of honesty. And that's really hard to do just in life in general. And then to do it so publicly, where it's not just your talent but your but it's also your perspective and your hard work that's on display for everyone to judge you know you have to kind of be vulnerable if you want it to succeed in any way shape or form and we've we've gotten so far off the topic it doesn't matter anymore but that is something that i think that kimberly actually does really well is it is a funny musical and it is a bittersweet musical uh an answer to the point about how i would yeah recommended to my mother yeah who was is 99 and uh there are all kinds of entertainments that i wouldn't recommend to her that she wouldn't want to sit through no uh but she could actually enjoy and sit through this because uh it has uh the human elements that you described but not doesn't leave you wanting to slit your wrists when you walk out of the theater. Yeah, because it's not hateful. The show is not hateful. The show, as I said, the show is about a lot of really broken people trying to do yeah. better, and and a lot of them unable to for a very long period of time. I also have said many stories are about characters making the wrong decision up until the last 20 minutes, and then they make a good decision, and things start to change for the better. And there's Aunt Deborah. And there's Aunt Deborah, who finally gets a job at Costco. Spoiler alert. I understand it pays well. Yes. I also, there's, when she tells Seth right before the heist, uh, when Seth's worrying about Kimberly and all this stuff, and Deborah says, you have to stop worrying about other people. You have to start focusing on you. And it's Bonnie Milligan, so she's saying, like, in a very sweet tone. And then she just looks at Seth, and she goes, what's wrong? And he goes, nothing's wrong. I just realized you're kind of an awful person. I didn't know Bonnie Milligan until I saw this. Yeah. She's terrific. She's great. Bonnie Milligan, um, and we'll talk about this in the Tony episode, Bonnie Milligan has been around for a bit. She was on the national tour of Kinky Boots with my friend Lauren, and she made her Broadway debut four years ago in Head Over Heels, which was the jukebox musical with Go-Go, the Go-Go's music. Uh, it didn't last very long, but she made the biggest impression in that show, and... Even then, everyone's like, oh, she'll get Tony nominated. But I knew. I knew it wasn't going to happen. But with this show, she's absolutely going to. But again, that's for next week. The thing about Deborah is like, yes, Deborah is a bad person. But even as a bad person, we see that she genuinely cares for Kim. She's, we, she's actually a welcome presence on stage when she shows up because she's the first person who's just wholeheartedly nice to Kimberly, who understands what it is to talk to Kimberly. She doesn't say anything rude about her physical appearance or about her age or anything like that she's just nice to her which then is actually really clever when it's revealed very slowly just how awful she is as a human being um 
I might have to see this again just to see what you just saw. Because I didn't see her being nice to Kimberly. I saw her, A, she's funny, and B, she's using Kimberly. Who's, yes, but she's using everybody, but she's not she's nice to everybody. And she doesn't care about anybody. I think she kept, no, I think she cares about Kimberly. Okay. She's the one who first mentions that it's Kimberly's birthday. When you... And she, and she, she's the first one who mentions that it's Kimberly's birthday, uh, or at least is trying to, when she's pulling out the mailbox and bringing it down to the basement and Kimberly goes to bed. She says to Patty, like, it's midnight. You know when what you day meet, it is. When you meet Bonnie Milligan, ask her if you're right or if I'm right. Okay. I mean... There's also what Bonnie... You, 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 there chances are you might run across her. There's also what Bonnie thinks. There's what David Lindsay Bear thinks. I think that she does care about Kimberly. That doesn't negate the fact that Deborah is out for number one, oh. which is Deborah. When the chips are down, if the popo shows up, Deborah's on the lamb. She's not <laughs> defending Kimberly. But th- at the moment, the popo's not there. She doesn't have to go to the slammer. So she, so she cares about her. She's definitely the person she cares about the most in the show outside of Deborah. I think that's absolutely true. But also caring about someone means not just caring about them when it's convenient. We're kind of splitting hairs. I don't think she cares about anybody but her. But I don't know her personally. She's never been mean to me. You you think that there's the entire time she's working, Kimberly, even when she's asking her about how school went and how the, she's the only one who asks her about how the school presentation went about the disease? I think it's the little moments like that that show you that there is genuine affection for her, even if... I think it's the little moments like that that shows that she knows what she's doing and knows how to do it. Well, on this side of but, the room, we have a half-empty glass, and on the other side of the room, we have a half-full glass. I should reverse that. Talk about story of our lives. Story of our lives. That's another Tesori musical. Uh, okay. I, I'm going to grant us one more song to talk about, which is the finale. We could, well, actually, no. We could talk about the turn, which is the dinner scene. Then we take the turn. In. Also, I gotta say, in true Janine Desori fashion, this score has multiple genres working. We've got '70s funk, we've got 1990s pop and indie. We've got. She's Broadway. a genius. Janine Desori. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She is a true genius. She is the greatest. That is a word I do not throw around. No, she is the greatest living musical theater composer we have right now. When you compare the scores of Carolina Change to Fun Home to Violet to Shrek, to Thoroughly Modern Millie, to this, it is it is absolutely bonkers that they all come from one person, and that person is Janine Desori. The woman is just on another level. She creates these amazing compositions that are musically fulfilling, and also so, I can't stress this enough, guys, her music is so fucking actable. It is so actable. There, there's a drive to it. I'm like, every time I listen to a song in Kimberly and Campbell, I'm like, God, let me get both hands on this. Uh, if I got to do like a Broadway backwards or a miscast where they do the gender reversals, I would, I would do my darndest to do Make a Wish. I will never do it as well as Vicky, but I'll do my darndest. Um, the turn is just where we reveal why the family had to leave Lodi to their new town because uh, Patty wanted another baby but was afraid of it getting Kimberly's disease again. So she had sex with their next door neighbor, Mr. Swicky who was older, and when Buddy found out, he hired Deborah to beat up Mr. Swicky. But unfortunately, Deborah was wearing a pig mask, and Mr. Swicky was old with a heart problem. So what happened? Flopkin. Yes, he died. He died. Which I never... It took me a, a... Face first into the oatmeal. It took me a while to realize that they actually foreshadowed that reveal in the Act 1 finale this time. 
when they're saying like this time my voice won't crack this time we take the prize and Debbie and Deborah goes this time nobody dies not like the other time the first time I saw it and then even like the second time on Broadway I saw it in my head I just thought it was like a very funny dark joke where it's like oh what happened what happened the other time Deborah it's a generic bad outcome yeah like oh the last time Deborah did a scheme somebody died whoops but no the last time Deborah did something with the family Swicky died that was the other time bad luck bad luck but yes and that's why the family had to leave Lodi and why Deborah had to hide in the woods for a while (laughs) where she where she gets Kimberly a big ass pine cone for her birthday yeah. She's a giver. She's a giver. Yeah. Um, but so the last song I want to talk about is the finale, Great Adventure, which has double meaning because we begin the song with Kimberly and Seth on the lamb. They take Deborah's cut of the money from the scheme that they pulled, as well as Kimberly's cut of the money. And they decide that they're going to drive down the East Coast. They're going to go to Six Flags Great Adventure. They're going to go to Colonial Williamsburg. They're going to go to Disney World. Did we ever impose Great Adventure on you? I went, but not with you. No, I went on for a birthday party. It was fine. It Colonial was nice. Williamsburg was fun. That was fun. And it was with sight of one of Laura's um, best witticisms. Which was? When the squirrel fell out of the tree and splatted right in front of us. She went, ooh, that's got to hurt. How old was Laura at the time? 10, 12? Something like that. Okay, that's clever for 12. I'll give her that. Her best line, and honestly, her rudest one, was when we were going to Disney World, and this is on brand for Kimberly Akimbo, when you're in Florida and you get closer and closer to Disney World, the exit signs for Disney World start having Mickey ears on them. And in my, I'm not sure they still do, but they did then. Yes, I think they still do. You would um, know. You're, yeah, I, I've been there more recently than there. you have. Uh, although last time I went was... No, it was about a year ago last time I went. Um, anyway, but uh, I'm three. I think I know seven words. One of them is Mickey. Three and a half. Three and a half. I know seven words. Two of them are look and Mickey. So every time you there would be a Mickey ear silhouette, I would just shout, look, Mickey. Ten minutes later, look, Mickey. And my sister, who is six, turns to me so over it. By like the twelfth look at Mickey, she just turns to me so over it. With she goes, all the world weariness that a six-year-old can muster. And she says, Matt, this is Disney World. There are going to be a lot of Mickeys. Basically to shut me up and my childhood wonderment. It was brilliant. I, and it was at that moment, ladies and gentlemen, that Matt Koplick's soul died forever. <laughs> he found no joy in the world ever again. It didn't die. It, it went, went to comatose a, and reawakened years later. Let's say it went into a slumber. <laughs> but... Yeah, that's... Oh, God. I love my sister. Uh, A medically induced coma. (laughs) Yes. So Seth and Kimberly are going... They're at Great Adventure, finally. And then they get to go on a Great Adventure. And this is where the show surprises you. Because I remember when... Oh, actually, fuck. I also kind of want to talk about the Our Disease presentation. Because they do the disease, and each kid does their disease. They do fasciolosis. They do scurvy. Calm down. We're almost done. No, and, I was thinking how brilliantly Virginia did... For, uh, Victoria did and that, that song. Oh, absolutely. When they do... And they get to her disease. Our disease is my disease. And it's so uncomfortable because she's trying to make light of it. Seth's trying to be scientific, but... Kimberly is realizing 
from the looks on all the kids' faces in the class how real this is. It's in front of them. She's freaking them out, and she's lived with it, and she's doing a great job of putting all of this together. And she's tr- and she's trying to be light about it to not make people uncomfortable, but that's also what she's been doing her whole life. Talk about Mission Impossible. And and she breaks. She breaks in the middle of this presentation and starts in her mind singing about the stupidity of adolescence because she's had to grow so much mentally because of her condition and because of who her parents are. And she's singing about who gives a shit about the stuff that you have as children like Okay, you get a zit. You're worried about who's sleeping with who because the show choir kids are all in love with each other, but it's all the wrong sexualities. One, uh, the the gay girls. Wrong is such a value laden term. Yes, the, Can we not say not the traditional roles? No, they are no, they are in love with the wrong person. The queer girl is in love with the straight girl, who's in love with the gay boy, who's in love with the straight boy, who's in love with the gay girl. So, and it's and luck. The one good thing Deborah does, and she doesn't do it out of the goodness of her heart. She does it they, so they stop waffling on the scheme. But she says. Let's cut the crap. Straight, gay, straight, gay. She needs to make it work. Yeah. She goes, someone correct me if I'm wrong, please. Great. I just solved, I solved two years of heartbreak for you. Anyway. To paraphrase Mo Green in Godfather, you're here to do business. Let's talk business. Yes. So Kimberly sings about how her, you know, everyone's looking at her because of her condition. And she goes, well, what about your condition? Your condition is concerned about a science grade and acne and all this stuff. And she goes, sure, that is your condition. She goes, and your cure is getting older. And my condition is getting older. Sorry, uh, getting older is my affliction. Yeah, my disease is getting older. Your cure is getting older. the, The lyric is exactly. Your disease is a tough one, that's for sure. Getting older is my affliction. Getting older is your cure. Getting older is your cure. And the night we saw it, the audience had the same response that they had at the Atlantic, which I'll never forget. At the Atlantic Theater with Jane Kaczmarek right in front of me, seven-time Emmy nominee Jane Kaczmarek, when Vicky sang, getting older is my affliction, getting older is your cure, 200 people collectively just went, ah, because it's a great line. It's so true. And like, we've been living with this story at that point for so long that it, was, it just fucking hit you in the gut. It's one of the, it's one of the few moments I've had in a theater where the whole audience had the same response. There's another one in the strange loop, which if you've seen it, and we'll get to that episode down the line, when Usher does his gospel play for his mom and it's, you know, what it is. And he says to her, you wanted a gospel play. This is the only way I know how to write it. At Playwrights Horizons, 200 white people at a Sunday matinee just collectively went, ugh. Because they all got it. We were all on the same page. It was beautiful. Um, but, yeah, she has her breakdown and all that stuff. But she, and she And for the first time, she sort of freaks out and acknowledges the life expectancy. She goes, few people with my disease last live longer than 16 years and i just turned 16 so happy birthday it's devastating but now her mind frame is back to if i have the time i have i'm going to make the most of it and she and seth are now on the lamb they're at great adventure and they're about to have their great adventure and for so long in the show you know that that kimberly is going to die as we all are eventually but sooner for her we just don't know when. And the show kind of hints that it could happen before the curtain comes down. You don't know for sure. 
But so for it to end with her getting her dream, getting to see the world, her, also her father singing to her, see the world. My God, does that just kill me? See the world, see the world. And then the screen shows all the places that she and Seth go to with the you know camcorder that they have. And everyone's just singing in this quiet, lovely way with the ukulele. And you see her parents have the baby and they've she sent them a postcard. So you're watching them you know, have their do over, but they're still in contact with her. And, and Deborah's mm. now got a job. Like it's, everyone's getting an the opportunity. The show ends with her joy. Yeah. Well, it, the show ends with, and, her, and that she has the capacity for joy and that everyone in her life that she's left, that she's moved on from is taking to heart what she says to them before she leaves, which is you don't get a second time around. So make the most of it. Just because you fucked up yesterday doesn't mean... Nobody you... gets a second time around. Isn't that a song? Yeah. No one gets... Well, the lyric in the show is, No one gets a second time around. I don't know if there's another song with the same lyric. No, is there? That's the lyric. Yeah. No one gets I think a second time I... around. You got the lyric right. I did. Well, I've been listening to it nonstop since the album came out. Uh, when you've seen it four times, you shouldn't need to. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is my joy. <laughs> and also, what else am I going to see multiple times this season? I haven't liked anything else as much. I know you and Grandma liked Some Like It Hot. That wasn't for me so much. Grandma liked it more than I did, but I thought it was good. I liked it more than Nanny did. I'm looking forward to Camelot. Sure. What a nap that'll be. Well, if you nap through that, you'll miss a lot of beautiful music. I'm not going to nap through that. I haven't slept at a Broadway show ever. But I'm just saying, she long. I can't say And she that. wordy. Well, no, you have slept. Well, we don't know what this uh, what this book is going to be like. We have a new writer for it, don't we? Yes, Aaron Sorkin, who is so minimalist with his dialogue. Say, he's not known for sparing words. <laughs> exactly. He's not uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. He's like, I think a thousand words is worth a picture. Well, hopefully he realizes the songs he's interrupting. Eh. And the songs he's interrupting are not doing a great job of telling a story. They're just brilliant songs. Yeah. It's why that cast recording is great. I don't need to necessarily watch the <laughs> 1960 production that goes along with it. But here we are. Kimberly Kimbo is a much shorter show than Camelot. They understood. They understood the assignment. Uh, the finale of Kimberly, I think, is also what makes it so special. And also why I think some people walk away, quote unquote, underwhelmed because they go in expecting... The gut punch of Fun Home, which mm. is just these like dark, dark, but very cathartic emotions. Whereas Kimberly Akimbo doesn't go to as dark a place, but it goes to just as a cathartic place. It just does it quietly, which I think is so sweet. Yes. Uh, I think it does a great job of saying what it wants to say and not hitting you over the head with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as you said, so much of the audience is expecting to get devastated at the end, a la Leopoldstadt. Yeah. Uh, and you don't. And it's a pretty uh, pretty skillful, difficult trick they turn. Yeah. It's not easy to have a show that centers on this end uh, successfully and not have it feel saccharine. Yeah, and and to resist the urge to go out on a musical bang, which a lot of shows feel the need to do, you know? Most. 
a good number. Surprisingly, there are quite a few Janita story shows that don't end well, on a Big Bang. No. She didn't write Mame or Hello Dolly. That's not her her I, genre. Well, that's first of all, let's not pigeonhole Miss Tesori that way. Tesori could write any goddamn genre she wants to. She is that good. Millie is the closest she's ever gotten to that genre, which you're not really familiar with Millie. But it's, you know Only at stage door. Sorry about that. That was it. Je- it's you know it's the jazz hot. It's that. Um, it's very bright, bubbly, and she does it very well. If you were to say, Janine, baby doll, before Jerry Herman died, he always wanted one more song for Mame, but he died before we could do it. Would you do us the honor? She would do it, and I'm telling you, it would I fit didn't that score. say she couldn't. I did. I just said she doesn't. Not for this one, anyway. It's she fits. She writes for what fits. To the, the extent that show. I am familiar with her book yeah well this is what i'm here for i'm here to i'm here to play you more she this violet and fun home have finales that start quietly builds to a rather large sound but then don't end on that large sound they end on a very quiet uh comforting and fitting end the largest sound in this show is the opening number yep i love that opening number which is a very clever way to get into this co- content and material because the audience is probably sitting down apprehensive mm-hmm. and right out of the bat you get uh, what's the name, number called? Skater Planet. Yeah. I, well, and it's so it works and um, as I said it, it gets everyone engaged and it gets them in the mood to be receptive because they're happy after yeah. that song. It's also the there's when you listen to the song Skater Planet and the way it's done on stage as well, they it does the same thing twice but in a very clever way because there's the visual and then there's the music. First of all, I think musically speaking the first instrument we hear is a ukulele, which is also the instrument we hear at the beginning of Great Adventure. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. I I I'm not as well versed in Is that in a ukulele or a banjo? Maybe it's a banjo. It's definitely a ukulele. I think it's. I thought it's definitely a ukulele for a great adventure. That much I know, or God, I hope I know. Maybe well, it's as a... your grandmother was sitting next to me as I was listening to the score, she liked that song. Yeah, it's good. But um, you know, it starts with that like little, little strumming, mm-hmm. and then it builds into the bum bum bum. And when the show opens, the curtain comes up on Victoria Clark in a pool of light with her entrance applause, which that bitch has earned. And then the first thing she does is she starts eating her candy necklace, which gets a nice visual laugh because it's a it's the dichotomy of the visual of this woman, this older woman, eating a candy necklace because you know that's sort of visually we're getting Kimberly from there. And then musically it does the same thing where we get the night nice light strumming into the big bolstered '90s pop teen music, which takes you a little bit by surprise. And then all the gorgeous harmony um, and and uh, vocal arrangements. It's just so good. And also, it has a lot of humor to it. It has one of my favorite lyrics, how they all talk about how they are misfits in some way. We're too weird in every way. And then Seth sings, I think Springsteen's just okay. To it, and then they go, which is not a thing to think in New Jersey. <laughs> Always gets a laugh. Probably best that I don't live there anymore. Yes. We lived in Tenafly, which they unfortunately don't and name. And Franklin Lakes. And Franklin Lakes. They don't name either town in the show, but they mention Birkin County quite a lot. They say Lodi. Uh, they say Paramus. I think in the play, 
they don't they don't say what town they moved to in the musical in the play they moved to Bogota, which is in Bergen County. I believe so. Yeah. Um, West Orange is not Bergen County, but they do. Now West Orange is the competition. Yes, uh, the show choir's competition. No, we are better than West Orange. Uh, God, there's another one that they, they I know they mentioned Paramus. I think they mentioned Hackensack. Uh, maybe Bogota is also mentioned when they talk about uh, how the the show choir director apparently tells them when they can't order a costume specially made. He goes, "Well, if you'll just do red t-shirts and and jeans." Where do they live? They don't say the town in the musical. In the play, it's Bogota, but I don't. They don't say what town in the musical. Let's say it's uh, uh, Englewood. I'm gonna say Englewood just for my own shits and giggles. It's not. It's not Englewood, but I'm gonna say it is. Okay. Why not? Why not? Or we can say it's um, Hoboken. Why not? It can be not Bergen County. Isn't Hoboken Bergen County? I believe Hoboken is Hudson County, but I could. I know it's not Bergen. Gross. I think it's Hudson. I could be wrong. Uh, there's Bergenfield, Closter, maybe Closter. Let's say it's Closter. It's not Closter. It's not Alpine. Definitely not Alpine. <laughs> Definitely not Alpine. Does Alpine even have a school? I think it's all just mansions. I think it has an elementary school. Okay. Okay. Um, it could be Bergenfield. That wouldn't be a bad one. Wherever there was a skating rink back in the 90s. Let's just think about it that way. How about that? Because it's got to be a skating rink. And it's got to be far enough from Lodi. Um, It's kind of humiliating to think that you were exiled from Lodi. They weren't necessarily exiled. They're on the lam from Lodi. Lodi always seemed like the kind of place you lambed to, not lambed from. (laughs) Well, that tells you (laughs) the kind of family that Kimberly is in. You're making my point for me. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Any other songs you want to point out or performances? No, I thought you asked me what moved me, and those were the three. Uh, There are other good songs, uh, entertaining songs. Sure. But they're not um, emotional to me. No. I mean, I think Anagram is just such a sweet song. That's Kimberly's uh, I Like You song to Seth. It's... And I also like the lyric, I wonder, because it's all about, I like your perspective. I like how you see the world. And mm. she goes, I wonder what you see when you look at me. Uh, and I I also just think that the book of this show is so good and so delightful that I'm, the, the, I have no notes on the cast album. The cast album is perfect. I, I gave it five stars for uh, the website I write for. But I also just want people to experience some of that scene work. Because after the song in the car with Buddy, where he tells Seth you're not getting in her pants, and you know, he's like, you don't kiss my daughter or whatever. And late, the next scene when they're in the hallway after, you know, Kimberly's told her father she hates him and you know, wishes he died. Seth says to her very sweetly, he's like, you know, I'd kiss you if you want. Like, as a friend. Not, you know, he's like, I didn't think about it before, but, but then your dad mentioned it. And I went, huh. <laughs> and it's, it's, <laughs> the way he says it. that. He goes, but then your dad mentioned it. And I went, huh. <laughs> so tell me Kimberly is it an option yeah yeah and it's like so you know you don't, have, don't have to answer yeah, off the top yeah. of your head he says you don't have to say it right now he's like but if you want to let me know and she goes okay and he goes okay right now or can yeah. you let me know she's like no I'll let you know we're in the hallway yeah. it's so it's so good and Vicky's so good at it oh god everyone just see this show it's delightful and I'm telling you now it's gonna win the Tony and Juliet who's she anywho Papa last words on Kimberly Akimbo if you were to not just your mother, but if you were to tell someone to see the show, 
how why why would why should they see it beyond the fact that it's good and we said so it's touching it's musically brilliant and it's a great example of telling a story with songs which is difficult to do often tried rarely succeeds uh it's good enough and rare enough to make it worth going out of your way as you know i wasn't anxious to see this and i'm really glad that i did although i won't see it four times much less five uh, i'm really glad i saw it once and this production is performed beautifully yeah it's uh, a great cast hope yeah hopefully if it gets produced other places uh they'll find talent they won't they may not find talent like victoria clark but there's a lot of talent out there i'm always in search of the do next you, victoria clark do you see this as something uh schools will do that it's hard because you do the part of kimberly has to physically be older although i guess you know you could do stage makeup or whatever I don't know. Schools are getting weirder now about what they allow their students to perform. I will say this is absolutely something that Stage Door will do. I can tell you that much. Stage Door will be all over this show. Okay. Uh, I mean, if, if they Stage Door call will, you in to direct it. Happily, now that I'm a director again, here we go. But not again, still. Still. Well, no. Like my childhood wonderment, it was in a coma for a while. <laughs> Hadn't been used since junior year. Medically of induced. Yes. Was not. Uh, activated since junior year of college. But we got some comments. Did that answer your question? It did. No, you did a great job. Kim, you're doing great, sweetie. The last thing I guess I'll just say. Tell the audience that I'm batting my eyelids. He's batting his eyelashes, everybody. The last thing I will say is I have, I'm, I've got a high bar in terms of what I consider quality in a, a show. And that doesn't mean I only like the highbrow stuff. It just means whatever you're going to do, as my mother says about life, do it. Go in, be the best version of that show you want to be. If you're going to be shucked, be fucking shucked, baby. If you're going to be Kimberly Akimbo, be Kimberly Akimbo. I have no time for the middle ground, middle of the road. And I do think that fandom of musical theater, and Broadway in particular, these days is a little sort of, everyone gets a trophy. Oh, I you know. shouldn't we just love everything that comes out? To which I say no, because how is anyone supposed to do any good work if everything's just gonna, you know, if we're just gonna support everything? It, there's nothing wrong with not liking something. Kimberly Akimbo, I can objectively tell you, is a well-crafted show. You may not like it. You'd be wrong and tells me about your taste level, but it's objectively well done. It's fantastically acted. It's got Victoria Clark, who I am sorry, children, you need to watch and learn from. I want to compliment you, Matthew. You've become more, uh, l- less judgmental and harsh in your old age. Because the last time you said something like that, you said, if you don't like it, you're somebody I don't ever want to know. Yeah. You didn't say that about Kimberly Akimbo. No, there's no, I forget what show I said that about. You, you this you just said, it says something about your taste, but you didn't say you're somebody I never want to know. No. What was the show that I said that about? Because I remember saying that. <laughs> I think it was, maybe it was, I don't know, maybe it was the 94 Carousel. There are certain, there are like three things where it's like, if you don't like this, I don't want to know you because this is just so objectively fantastic that if you can't recognize this, why should I want to know you? Uh, that said, this is not a show where I feel that way. You've mellowed. Anyway, Papa, this has been a, Blast. Thank you for doing this. I enjoyed it. I'm glad you asked. Um, 
I know you don't want people to find you, but on the off chance that people want to let you know how much they enjoyed your time on this podcast, is there any place where they can reach you? Through you. Through me. I am the liaison. Uh, they can't just randomly Facebook friend you? Why? He doesn't post anything on Facebook. I don't post Facebook. on Facebook. You know, you'll see a, He'll like your a nice picture of me because I have a picture. Yeah. But occasionally I like. Even more rarely I will comment. Yeah. But uh, you know, sort of the people who need to know about me do yeah. without me putting it out there in the metaverse. Next time you're here, you're seeing Camelot. I could I could do that right now nope. based on what the 1960 version was. But Camelot. I cannot imagine anybody doing better than Richard Burton. Well, let's not put the bar there because Burton was Burton. But I will say my tall drink of talent, Andrew Burnap, is playing Arthur in this production, and I look forward to. Can seeing he what bring he does. pathos to it? He can bring anything. I well, I, I don't want to over sell him i just thought he was so fantastic in the inheritance plus i find him quite attractive so i'm looking forward to his arthur when they announced him in camelot i went oh they're going for a camelot that fucks because this is not a sexless arthur father don't even act like that's the worst thing i've ever said to you today let alone in my entire life that's the worst thing you said to me in the last 20 minutes welcome to your life with me as your son (laughs) you're so very welcome i keep you young Baby. That's true. You you keep me in touch with a certain portion of the zeitgeist with which I would be out of touch. Yeah, you're a zeitgeist. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. If you like the podcast, give us a nice five-star rating. Give us a little review. I haven't had a review to read in a while. It's, I'm, I'm missing it. Let's, let's do another one. Join us next week when we start our Tony Prediction series uh, as we put this, the big move, on pause for just a little bit. Because I learned from Oscar season, it's really fun to start mapping this shit out. It's really cool. And there's no real rhyme or reason, but you can try. You know? What the hell? Listen, if Scott can make all the bets on sports where there really is no rhyme or reason, mm-hmm. I can start having people make bets on awards for theater where there's a little bit more. Uh, until then, yeah, just uh, have a great rest of your week. We're not going to do Six Degrees of Sally Murphy, nor are we going to do Who Lives Who Dies, Janine DeSori, because this is a Janine DeSori musical. We have our Six Degrees of Separation from her already. And Sally Murphy, listen, it's already there, okay? Janine DeSori wrote... Uh, the score for Shrek that had Brian Darcy James, who was in Carolina Chain, uh, who was in a Carousel with Sally Murphy. Victoria Clark was in Titanic with Brian Darcy James, who was in Carousel with Sally Murphy. Stephen Boyer was in Hand to God with Mark Kudish, who was in Wild Party with Sally Murphy. Everyone is connected to Sally Murphy. We're going to close out with Ali Mozzie as our diva today because we've closed out with Vicky Clark before and we've closed out with Bonnie Milligan. So I think we're going to close out Ali Mozzie. And that's it. Yeah. Uh, have a great week, everybody. And take us away, Ali. Oh, and if you want to follow me, I'm on Instagram, at Mycoplic, usual spelling. Uh, and that's it. <laughs> take us away, Ali. Bye.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 